Welcome to another public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor Mark Birkinshaw will be speaking about the effect of gravity on light as part of this year's Herschel Lecture, named in remembrance of the Bath astronomer who discovered the planet Uranus in 1781. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. May I welcome you here to the joint lecture of the William Herschel Society uh, and the University of Bath. Uh, and I'm speaking here as the chairman for William Herschel uh, Society. My name's Peter Ford, uh, and I'm currently chair, having fairly recently taken over from Francis Ring, and I've also fairly recently retired from many years in the physics department of the University of Bath. Um, perhaps I must say that our speaker, we're very pleased to welcome both the University of Bath and the University of Bristol, I suppose have had... Uh, common roots in the Merchant Ventures College around the 1850s. Mark Birkinshaw is a professor in the University of Bristol. Rather impressive, very American-sounding name that he's a William P. Colerick Professor of Cosmology and Astrophysics. Um, perhaps you can tell us who William P. Colerick is at some time. But um, we're delighted that he's coming to talk to us. And the subject, when we get all the... Uh, slides on is our distorted view of the universe. Well, I think all it remains for me to say is to uh, give a quick hand uh, hand clap for the speaker, and uh, it's very nice to see you here. Right. What I'm going to do this evening is um, give you a short trot through the area of astrophysics to do with gravitational lensing. That is um, rather a nice application of general relativity to measure the masses of objects in the universe using the distortion they put on other objects in the universe. So I'm going to start by just giving you a little bit of the, uh, the background physics at a fairly basic level. So those of you who actually do general relativity, please forgive me for sounding um, uh, rather play school. After that, I will launch into a whole slew of pictures which are intended to show you both uh, qualitatively how gravitational lensing works and show you some of the prime gravitational lenses that we work with and the sort of results we get from working with them. I've divided that up into four categories. Firstly, the, uh, the multiple image gravitational lenses. That's the good, strong things that make the prettiest pictures. Microlensing and uh, <coughs> nanolensing, which is where we don't really get much of a picture at all, but we get some rather interesting information of a different type. Cluster-based lensing, which is my own personal favorite, and then the weak lensing and some of the cosmological applications. And by the time we get down to the end there, I'll finally be able to refer to some of my own work. Most of the rest of it is shamelessly plagiarized from friends and enemies. Okay, so let's um, start by thinking about what gravity does to particles in general. If you fire a particle past another particle, then different things can happen depending on what the balance of energy and angular momentum are for those two particles. Obviously since there's not, no such thing as anti-gravity, modulo, some funnies in general relativity, if you fire two particles past one another, they're going to attract, and the path is going to bend. 
the shape that that path takes depends critically on the balance between the energy of the particle and its angular momentum. And we categorize that into this quantity, the um, eccentricity of the orbit. In Newtonian gravity, I can write down an equation for the eccentricity like that. And then you can categorize the motion. If, if the E is zero, you've got a nice circular path. You couldn't really fire it in at all, in other words. If E is between zero and one, elliptical motion, one, a parabola. E greater than one, a hyperbola. Okay, so let's fire an object in, coming in from infinity. It's, it's therefore got positive total energy. It's going to escape again. E is greater than one, and we have a hyperbolic type orbit. Basic orbit theory. Ah. Okay, so much for massive particles. How about photons? Well, a Newtonian would tell you that um, a photon doesn't really have mass, but it sort of has mass if you believe in quantum mechanics because it's got an energy, and energy and mass are related in some sort of way. So if you think of a photon initially as just a massive particle that happens to travel at the speed of light, then we can use exactly this sort of theory and work out how much this rather fast particle gets deflected by the gravity uh, it goes past. And if we start from the photons a long way away, fire them past, they're again going to follow hyperbolic type of orbit. They've got enough energy that they can escape from gravitational potential wells. We therefore have these hyperbolic orbits. You can work out what the angular change of path is as a photon goes in and is deflected, and the angle is given in terms of the mass of the object, the impact parameter, that is how close it wants to get to the mass that's doing the lensing, and the speed of light squared. G is a small number. C is a, a very large number. So G over C squared is an incredibly small number. The mass, well, something with the mass of a sun is a fairly small mass, so that's a small number. And all the distances are big. So this is a tiny angle. And Einstein, um, when he talked about this, uh, thought that no sort of gravitational lensing would work. Now, this is Newtonian theory. And Newtonian theory gives us a factor two here. Let us now do it in... Oh, I put a picture in. So here's, what, here's the picture you've got to, got to have. We start with an object at the source here, S. We fire a photon along the solid line, we've got some sort of mass which I've drawn as a sort of a lens shape here, which is going to bend the light, it's going to be seen by the observer. That means the observer feels that the light is coming in from a point a bit above where the source actually is. The angle to the source is increased by the deflection. Okay, let's do the general relativistic case. And somewhere below the desk, a bit of magic happens, and I do the calculation. Basically, it's the same. It's a little bit trickier. And the answer comes out the same, except with a factor of four in front. That is, in general relativity, mass is twice as effective at deflecting light as it is in um, Newtonian gravity. A clear difference between the two theories. Now, historically, that was extremely important. Uh, historically, of course, 
this is a difficult thing to do, to measure this sort of angle. Um, but we've got two different theories. We want to find out which one is right. The classic way of doing this is to take the biggest mass you can find and let a photon go as close as possible to that mass and measure the largest possible angle that you can get out. Well, the biggest mass we have handy is the sun, and the sun has a little bit of a problem in that it's quite bright, but if you can look at a background object around the sun so that the, uh, the path of the light ray just grazes the limb of the sun, you should get a deflection of a bit under two seconds of arc. Now, it's a bit hard to do that most times, if you're using optical astronomy anyway, but during solar eclipse, this works quite nicely. And in May 1919, this chap, Arthur Eddington, um, led an expedition from the UK that went to the island of Principe off the uh, coast of Africa to observe a solar eclipse with the aim of looking for this, this deflection of light. And the idea was that you take a picture of the sky um, when the sun is in the far side of, the, uh, of its orbit, and you compare that picture with what you get when the sun is eclipsed by the moon and lying in the middle of that star field. And this is one of his pictures. You can maybe just see some fuzzy marks here, which mark some stars that could just be seen on the original plates. They measured the relative locations of that pattern of stars when the sun is in the field and when the sun is not in the field, and came up with the story that there was a deflection, oops, there was a deflection of 1.6 plus or minus 0.3 arc seconds at the limb of the sun, 1.75 arc seconds was expected. The experiment was done on the 29th of May, and was an, the result was announced at the beginning of November 1919. And the um, uh, London Illustrated newspapers quite happily published the result later that month. This result, that the deflection of light was twice what Newton said, um, made Einstein instantly famous, made Eddington instantly even more famous, and... Um, started Eddington's second career as sort of Einstein's Rottweiler in England. He would defend Einstein's theory pretty much to the death. Uh, Eddington's measurement wasn't terribly good. Things were improved by an Australian expedition a couple of years later. You can see 1.71 plus or minus 0.1. It's a much better measurement. But essentially, by the time of this next second expedition, general relativity was widely accepted not understood, but accepted. Okay, so we have a gravitational deflection of light. Einstein said that this was almost entirely useless. Nobody would ever, ever be able to observe the effect, so it's just a mathematical prettiness. In 1979, uh, some astronomers from Jodrell Bank were working through a very long list of radio sources they detected in a survey with the big telescope at Jodrell Bank. 
uh, working at 966 megahertz. One of the objects was a little bit peculiar in that they didn't know which of two potential optical counterparts was the correct counterpart. That's this object, 0957 plus 561. You can see there's a couple of objects here. And um, they went off to the telescope, took spectra of these just to find out what they were, expecting that one would be a star, the other would be a quasar, which was responsible for the radio emission, and you could forget the star. The night of the observation, they had a little bet among themselves. One guy said, oh, it'll be the north one. One guy said, no, it'll be the south one. Another one said, no, it'll be neither of them. And one chap said, it'll be two quasars, both with the same redshift. And uh, he put a pound on it. It's the only time I've ever heard of somebody making money on astronomy. It turned out these are two quasars with essentially identical redshifts. Two possibilities, that these are two quasars which just happen to be accidentally in the same set of galaxies, and so are very close in space and very close in velocity. Or, it was thought almost immediately, these could be two images of one quasar split by gravitational lensing in exactly the sort of way that a lens can split the image of anything. Well, if so, we ought to be able to see the lensing mass in between those two quasars. Here's a rather better picture. Here are the two quasars, and there's the lensing mass. It's a galaxy that lies something like halfway to the two quasars. For various reasons, an object halfway out between us and the quasars is more effective than an object at any other position. So we have a nice gravitational lens. This is known as the double quasar because it was the first example of a really good gravitational lens. Now, here's what the uh, system is, effectively, from uh, Matthias Bartelman's website. Here's the quasar. We're seeing two images because the light's taking two different paths around the galaxy. You can see the two different paths are naturally going to be two different lengths. So if this quasar happens to get bright and then dim, you might expect the brightening and then the dimming to take different lengths of time to come around the two different paths. So we'd see one image go bright and dark, then the other one would go bright and dark. You can measure a time difference. Now, in fact, the geometry of the situation is only a small part of the picture. There's another time delay that comes in as well because um, clocks run at different speeds in different gravitational fields, and this ray of light gets a bit closer to the mass than the other ray of light, so there's a second delay. Oops. Ah! There we go. I'll come back to those. Uh, what I'm showing here is the light curve of the two quasar images over about a year, where one image has been shifted by, uh, by 300 <coughs> days so that the light curves lie on top. In other words, the time delay has been measured for this system. So we can see that we really are seeing two images of the same thing. There is a time delay between them that we can measure. That time delay 
gives a very good measurement of the mass of these objects. Now let me uh, backspace to where I was supposed to be. Ah. Okay. Now I told you that they're going after the double quasar because it was a radio source. This is a radio map that was made some years later by uh, Neil Jackson at, uh, at Jodrell. Now, gravitational lensing is a very peculiar thing. When you make a lens out of uh, glass, light of different wavelengths gets uh, refracted slightly differently. You don't get a perfectly achromatic uh, lensing situation. You can see little uh, rainbows around the edge of some of the images. Gravity, though, is an absolutely perfect lens. Any frequency of, of light will get refracted exactly the same amount. So a radio and an optical refraction should be identical. In the optical, we saw two lovely quasars identically bent. Well, two lovely quasars bent either side of the galaxy. In the radio, they, you ought to see the identical thing. And you can see we've got two identical images, top and bottom. Well, not quite. These are the locations of the centers of the quasars. And the picture at the top shows you that the uh, quasar is emitting radio waves in a sort of a flow that comes out of the quasar up in one direction. And there's a bit of stuff, a bit of fuzz the other side as well. The lens galaxy, in this case, is centered round about here. Now... Lenses aren't the same as prisms. They have different bending strengths depending on how close you get to the center of the lens. And the light that comes out of the quasar along one path follows a range of paths that get closer to the lensing mass on one side of the lens than on the other side. And this little stubby thing is the image of that heavily distorted by the fact that this side gets too close to the mass compared with the other side. It gets much more distorted. You can also see it gets a lot fainter. Not only do we have a change in shape, we have a change in brightness. After all, lenses can magnify and change the apparent brightness of images. And that's what we're seeing here but with a very large change in brightness going over a very small angle. That's only one arc second on the sky. Now, this is what we're really seeing. Uh, I gather there's a demonstration of exactly this down the front that you can take a look at later. Um, here's a picture of the uh, Smithsonian Institution headquarters on the Mall in Washington. And on the right, uh, this is being seen from across the Mall. On the right is the picture you would see if a Saturn, Saturn mass black hole happened to drop between you and the Smithsonian while you were standing there. Well, you see it sort of temporarily. <laughs> now, you can see that um, this tower appears extremely distorted by the bending effect of the mass, which is towards the center of this lens. And it also appears inverted over here. <coughs> There's actually a third image, which is uh, heavily distorted, stuck in the center. We get several images with different parities, different inversions, and different brightnesses and different magnifications. The pattern of brightnesses, brightnesses, the pattern of shapes that we get, 
tells us something about the structure of the lens that's doing the distorting of the light. This will become rather important very shortly. Just to be a little bit technical for a second, let's suppose we have uh, three objects behind a lens, which, for the sake of this argument, we won't take to be a, a point mass. We'll take to be a sort of an extended elliptical mess. Suppose we put our background quasar or whatever else at the red spot. This picture on the right is supposed to be an image of where the source is relative to the center of the lens. Then we would see five images, one, two, three, four, and a very faint fifth one, produced from that red spot. You can see they're broadly distributed in sort of circles, circumferential things. Two lie inside this critical line, two outside, and one inside some sort of inner critical surface. As we move out towards the green splodge, these two images come up towards the one at the top and start to merge to make something that looks like a huge arc. This one drifts in towards the center. That one stays pretty faint. And when we get to the blue location, we end up with just three images, more or less on a straight line, with one heavily distorted one. The uh, very light blue, single object, single image. Five, three, one. An odd number of images wherever we put the object relative to the lens. All lensing will produce an odd number of images unless there's a very strong mass cusp, an, an infinity of mass density towards the center of the object that's doing the lensing. That will eat this central image. So we have a double quasar, two images, one missing. And just about every other lensing situation, with a couple of exceptions that I'll show you, we actually see an even number of images where we expect an odd number, telling you that towards the centers of the objects that are doing the lensing, there is a very strong mass concentration that may be a black hole or maybe just a mass density that's so high that it defocuses this image and makes it incredibly faint so that we're not able to see it. This is another picture of the same sort of thing, just looked at a different way. If this is a source sending out waves of light, or in this case, uh, some light after, say, 100 million years, 200 million years, 300 million years, and so on. Light that passes one side or the other of the cluster feels a differential delay. And light going through the middle of the cluster is significantly delayed. And if we think of these wave fronts as sort of spreading out, once you've got a sort of a delay like that in the center, as things spread out, they start to overlap. You tend to get multiple, multiple um, paths by which these um, light uh, pulses can get to you. And if we count, there's one, two, three crossings of any dotted line in there. So we might see three images. Out here, one, two, three, four, oops, sorry, just one, two, three, another three images. I mustn't count the other path. So 
this relationship between um, the no this business about the number of images is also a, a business to do with time delay. And the time delays that I showed you for the double quasar are very strongly related to the multiplicity of the images and to the brightness of the images, and also to the image shapes. Okay, here's another example. This is very famous. This is uh, sometimes known as Hooker's lens or the Einstein cross. This is the middle of a spiral galaxy, a very nearby spiral galaxy. It's um, at a redshift of about 0.04. And I think you can see sort of the shape of the spiral with one, two, three, four bright splodges and maybe a little fuzz at the center. This is a very unfavorable lens because the quasars are at a high redshift and the galaxies at a very low redshift. It just happens to produce multiple images because the quasar is extremely unlucky to be almost exactly behind a very dense mass concentration. And here's a slightly better picture of the center showing you the four quasar images and the center of the galaxy very clearly. No fifth image. Again, you must have a very high mass density towards the center of this galaxy in order to defocus that fifth image. And just as with the double quasar, we can measure time delays, you can measure time delays with this uh, quadruple quasar. This is about one graduate student's worth of study, three years. And I don't think, with the best will in the world, anybody could say what shift you have to do to these light curves to make them all match up. Measuring the time delays can be an extremely tedious business. The time delays typical for um, uh, galaxy mass lenses are of order years. And that years can be several years, 10 years, or, e or just a few months. But um, 10 years is about the attention span of a university professor. And once it gets beyond about 10 years, people rather lose interest. And here's the situation again, a rather cruder picture. Okay, how about this one? This is quite a famous uh, um, gravitational lens, where rather than seeing multiple images, what we're seeing is a sort of a ring shape. What's happening here is that the, this is a radio picture, I should say. What's happening here is that the radio source is almost exactly behind a very strong mass concentration. And then light from all directions can reach you. It, it's a, a symmetry situation, which would be broken if the uh, radio source was slightly off the center line. And so what we're seeing is this rather nice uh, bullseye. I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Uh, that was a, a quote from me that uh, made it into, um, into the Times. Goodness knows why. What's the thing in the middle? Because that ought to be defocused. Well, radio sources are quite big, flabby, fuzzy things. And this is the bit of fuzziness that doesn't get close enough to the mass distribution to really show up. 
if we were to take a, make a very good picture, we'd probably see a dip in brightness of that right towards the center. Einstein rings oops, require quite a lot of symmetry and so are quite rare. Here's uh, what the situation is. I've explained it in words. We have a massive object, us looking at it, and we have to have a very close alignment to see a ring rather than just a mess. Two bright messes and one defocused mess. There's a couple more examples known. This is probably the prettiest, where you get a very narrow ring and a couple of blobs either side. It looks like um, a folded diamond engagement ring or something like that. Because the symmetry is so high, you can, in fact, um, invert the image that we see to try to work out what the original source was if you make some assumptions about what the mass distribution is in the middle. And that's a game that people love to play. In this case, this is a simple uh, blob of stuff shooting some stuff out on one side in a straight line. And we're seeing the, uh, the jet emission here on those two sides. The blob itself has turned into the circle. Okay. Now those are really pretty little uh, images of gravitational lensing. This is probably one of the ugliest images of gravitational lensing. This is a um, star field in the Small Magellanic Cloud that is being monitored on a daily basis by the so-called Ogle Collaboration. You can see one poor unsuspecting star in the middle there has been indicated. What this collaboration does is take large images of chunks of the sky every night to look to see if a single object within that image changes in brightness. So let's watch that object. Here we go. 500 days, 1,000 days, 1,500, 2,000, 2,500 days. Eight years of data. And you can see it was boring for about seven and three-quarter years, and then something funny happened. Let's um, expand this time range a little bit. It got very much brighter. That's um, two and a half magnitudes brighter. And in a very symmetrical way, it got brighter and then faded off again. Now, normally variable stars sort of pulse up and then come down in a, an asymmetrical type of way. What's going on here is also gravitational lensing. But it's gravitational lensing on a very small angular scale, so-called microlensing. It's called microlensing because we cannot see the two images that are made of the star during this phase. What's happening is that an object somewhere between us and this background star is wandering across the line of sight and getting between us and the background star. When it gets close to the line to the background star, we see two images of the star going either side of it. And that, that lensing causes some amplification of the brightness of the star. You can make a prediction of the shape of that brightening and dimming, and that's what the pink curve is. You can see a very nice curve with a time scale here of around about 30 days, which is typical for the time scale on which something with a mass of, say, two-tenths of a solar mass 
traveling at a typical speed of a star in our galaxy of, say, 100 kilometers per second, moving right across the front of that background star. In any one year, one in 100 million stars will see this sort of thing happen. And these people, the Ogle Collaboration, look at an enormous number of stars every night, several million stars a night, knowing that on average over a year you'll get maybe three of them doing something. And over the 10 years they've been working, they've now seen something like 60 of this type of gravitational lens. And you can do all sorts of lovely tricks with that. Most interestingly, sometimes you get a rather messy peak where this doesn't go up and then down again. Now what's happening is rather more interesting. This is nanolensing. What's happening now is that you've got two lenses simultaneously doing something. There's this star that's wandering across the line of sight of the background star, amplifying it. And that star that's amplifying, it's got a planet going around it. And the effect of the planet is amplified by the lens that's the star looking at the background star. And that effect changes the symmetrical peak and puts two <coughs> horns on it. In this case, they've detected a Jupiter-mass planet at about 2 or 3 AU from the, uh, the parent star, you can work out a few interesting things about it from that sort of information. But look how many people had to collaborate to get this light curve. And look how short the time scale is on which the, the uh, lumpiness happens. This is happening in a fraction of a day. So if you were, were to head out towards that star, you would find a Jupiter-mass planet around it. Sometimes you get even luckier. Here's another lensing a signal where there's a planet here and there's another planet there because the curve is not symmetrical. So there are two planets around this star, 0.7 and 0.3 times the mass of Jupiter, that is round about the mass of Jupiter and the mass of Saturn, and they're round about 2 AU and 5 AU from the star. So there's a, a nice second solar system to go and visit. And here's another one. This one's particularly interesting because the lens signal here corresponds to a planet of only five and a half Earth masses. That is, it's an exceptionally low-mass planet. Normally when we find planets around other stars, we know about three or four hundred of them now, they've got masses of one or two or five Jupiter masses. To get something that's down at the level of um, a few Earth masses, getting down to a, a Uranus or something like that, is exceptional. And so this particular star has around it a planet which is not that far from being viable for life. Should you want to visit, that's where it is. It's round about um, uh, a thousand light years away. Now, actually, what I'm pointing to is what, where the star is it's being lensed by the thing that has the planet around it. And that thing that has the planet around it is currently sort of drifting off in some unknown direction relative to that direction, to that background <coughs> star. Regrettably, we don't know what direction it's moving in, and regrettably, the chance of it ever hitting another star and giving us another lensing signal 
on the lifetime of, say, the average university is only about one in 100,000. So probably we're not going to get another snapshot of the planets around that star. Okay, that's sort of, that's microlensing and nanolensing. Let's go on to um, something more, more like macro lensing, where rather than looking at the lensing by a star or a planet or a uh, single galaxy, let's have the collaborative lensing of a whole um, cluster of galaxies working together. This picture shows a fairly obvious arc-shaped thing here, great big blue arc, and the fuzzballs in yellow are the brightest galaxies in a cluster of galaxies between us and something in the background. You can perhaps also see a funny little red thing above the blue thing towards the top of the picture. That's another small lensed background object. One of these things is blue, one of them is red. The red one is further away. Probably this one's at about a redshift of one and a half. The red one may be at a redshift of three and a half. What are we doing here? Effectively, what we're doing is using a cluster of galaxies that's maybe 3,000 million light years away as the objective lens of a telescope with us at the eyepiece and the object that we're trying to look at way over the far side of the, of the universe. So we've got one of the longest telescopes you could ever hope to build. I don't think Herschel would have um, uh, found it much fun trying to polish that particular lens. He was rather good at them on the smaller scale. Here's a few more examples. This is my personal favorite of these, Abel 2218. Uh, you can see all the yellow fuzzballs. You can also see a peculiar shaped galaxy at the middle there, which we will ignore. But you can also see all sorts of peculiar distorted arcs all over the field. What's happening is that this cluster of galaxies is so massive that it is lensing thousands of background galaxies and distorting them. When I showed you the picture of the Smithsonian Institution, everything was distorted into little arcs. Here we're seeing individual galaxies distorted into little arcs behind this cluster. Let's zoom in a little bit on a region down towards the bottom of one of those galaxies. You can see a very nice thin arc running up there and maybe two little red blobs. Those two little red blobs lie in a rather particular place within the cluster where we know that the mass distribution of the cluster is amplifying their signals by a very large factor. Such a large factor that were we to have a galaxy like our own galaxy at a redshift of 10, we would still be able to detect it. A galaxy at that sort of redshift, it's called redshift for a very good reason, would be very red. And you can see these are two very red things that are circled. People have been going out trying to get emission lines from these to find out what redshift they're really at. It's only about six and a half. But that's still some of the most distant known galaxies in the universe. And we can see that galaxies formed in the universe really very fast after the Big Bang within a billion and a half years of the Big Bang. I find these pictures rather pretty, so I, th I thought I'd throw a few more in. This is another cluster, but this time, rather than looking at background galaxies, 
we've got a one, two, three, four, five images of a quasar. Where in the double quasar, we had just two quasar images, and they're separated by around about six and a half arc seconds. Here we have five quasar images, which are separated by around about an arc minute. An arc minute to six arc seconds factor of 10, there's at least 10 times as much mass in the cluster as there was in that one galaxy to do the concentrating of the light. Now we can go on. Some of these are extraordinarily pretty. Here you can see lots of blue arcs. And you can maybe see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven images of a peculiar sort of hoop-shaped blue galaxy. Odd number of images. There isn't a huge mass concentration towards the center of this cluster. There's just some blobs of stuff. You can invert the images that we see to get a picture of what the mass distribution in such a cluster is. And this is uh, uh, Jean-Paul Kniebe's um, image of the mass distribution in that particular cluster. Once you've got this mass distribution, you can say, okay, I now know the shape of the objective lens in my telescope that's half the size of the universe long. I've got those four or five very good images of a background galaxy. I'd better check that that is the same background galaxy by making sure that when I take account of the distortion of that lens, they all look the same. And there we go. That's what the picture of those background those background objects is when you try to take out the effect of the lens. It's a very nice ring-shaped galaxy with a bright nucleus. It's very blue because it's a very young galaxy. It's making stars. Here's another example which I just threw in gratuitously. Abel 1689. Uh, and again, lots of galaxies, lots of little arclets. These arclets weren't known until the 1980s. At least they were, but they were seen actually in the 1960s, but people always thought they were defects with the telescope. It was only when they became so significant and so obvious, and actually there was one particularly fat one that wouldn't go away whatever you did, that they realized that these really are structures that are telling us something about the mass distribution in a cluster. Here's another one, a very pretty one, from Fosbury and Friends. Very nice blue arc here, and a very peculiar red arc there. Again, red, extraordinarily distant. And this is one of the more powerful gravitational lenses. We don't know what the redshift of that is, but it's considerable. Galaxies forming extremely early in the universe, if we didn't have this telescope sitting out here helping us, those things would be so tiny that even the space telescope couldn't see they were galaxies. Wouldn't be able to tell them from stars. In fact, they'd be so faint, you wouldn't be able to see them at all. A few more examples. On the right-hand side, a picture in uh, devastatingly ugly false color of... Um, some uh, clusters of galaxies with very dominant central cluster galaxies in these cases. And on the left, an X-ray picture. 
Now, why am I doing that? The gravitational lensing arcs, these things, are something to do with the mass of the entire cluster of galaxies distorting light. And by measuring the shapes and locations of these arcs, we can measure how much mass there is. The X-ray picture is showing us where there is gas within these clusters. Now that gas is being held in by the gravity field that is distorting the light to make these arcs. And so there ought to be a consistency between the shape of the X-ray image and the shape of the gravity distribution we see in these images. And that consistency seems to work. We can go a little bit further than that. The X-ray emission comes from ordinary stuff, that is hydrogen, helium, and all the rest of the elements that astronomers typically call metals, all heated up to a high temperature because the gravity field is very strong in these clusters. And in looking at the X-rays, we're looking along columns through the entire cluster. So in any given direction, the brightness of the X-rays tells us how much ordinary stuff there is. The amount of gravitational distortion tells us how much total massive stuff there is. And so if you sort of divide one image by another crudely, you get a measure of the amount of ordinary stuff to total mass. When you do that, you find that about 13% of the total mass you have to have to get these lenses is in ordinary gas. A couple more percent is in galaxies, maybe 13, 15%, something like that. So 85% of the mass of the universe, which is making the gravitational lensing, is not behaving like ordinary stuff. That is the dark matter. So this is a gravitational lensing demonstration that there is dark matter in clusters of galaxies. The original statement that there is dark matter is based on the uh, high speeds of the galaxies in clusters of galaxies. But here, we're essentially weighing a cluster by its lensing effect, and we're taking an assay of the ordinary stuff by its x-rays. Different way of doing things. I couldn't resist throwing this in, because I'm on this paper. Uh, and this uses a slightly different technique. Again, it uses the gravitational lensing to measure the total mass, but rather than using the X-rays, which uh, for various technical reasons are hard to deal with, it uses a thing called the Snyazodovich effect, which is a shadowing effect of the microwave background radiation of the same gas that emits in the X-rays. The reason we like to use that is that the Snyazodovich effect is exactly proportional to the baryonic mass density. And so you can just divide the images. You don't have to do any fancy fiddling around. Just divide the images and see what happens. And these curves show that we're getting something like 15% of the total mass of the universe being in the stuff that's producing SZ effect or X-rays. The total cosmic baryon fraction is closer to 17%. We're still missing some of the baryons somewhere. Don't know where they're hidden. They're somewhere out there. Probably, in my view, in rather low-density halos on a very large scale. And talking of larger scales, effectively what's happening to these photons as they're coming towards us and being bent by 
the mass distribution is that they're just sort of reacting to what there is out there, what the gravity field is. Now, the universe is lumpy all over. So a photon that starts from a long way away can get um, pretty kinky by the time it gets to us. It's going to be kinked. Its path is going to be jiggled around by all of the mass distribution between out there and here. There's three very non-representative photon uh, paths drawn. And um, uh, I have to report that this distance is around about 150 megaparsecs. And the jiggling has been amplified by a factor of around about 10 to the 20 to make it visible. <laughs> Here's a slightly different drawing of the same sort of thing. Suppose we have some background circular galaxies and we look at the shapes that those galaxies are distorted to by the mass distribution. Then two adjacent background galaxies will feel the same sort of gravity field as they come towards us. And the statistics of the shapes of pairs of galaxies that come to us tell us something about the statistics of the mass distribution between us and where those galaxies are. What we tend to find is that there are rather more closely aligned galaxy pairs than we would expect given random intrinsic galaxy shapes and spherical lumps of stuff in the universe. This has been taken as a demonstration that stuff in the universe likes not to be in spherical lumps, but in long, thin things, which contain a lot of mass. The so-called filaments, the filaments of galaxies, the filaments of dark matter. If we look down one end of that 150 megaparsec long thing and ask, what is the total effect of all the mass between us and and structure fading out in the early stage of the universe, expressed as a brightening. You can make a sort of a pretty carpet picture which shows the bright bits and the dimmed bits. The brightened bits here are in red, the dimmer bits are in uh, blue. You can see that the magnified areas are rather a small fraction of the total area. On average, an object is actually going to be a little bit fainter than it would be in the absence of, uh, of this gravitational lensing. This is just to uh, show you what we can do with that information. Suppose back at infinity, or close to it, we have a lot of rather round galaxies, and in between us and there we have some lumpy mass. Then the pattern of galaxy shapes on the right-hand side tells you about the distribution of mass. And I think just by eye you can see sort of elongated things and swirly things there's something to do with elongations pointing to lumps of mass or swirls pointing to lumps of mass. You can take this sort of image and invert it to tell you what the mass distribution is on average all the way through the universe. At least you can have a jolly good go. That's a very nice trick that we tend to do. Here is such a data set where the distortions of the galaxies here are plotted as sort of lines. And up at the top left-hand side, you can see a very bright blob just come out of the mass reconstruction. And that's what it was. There was a cluster of galaxies there. You can now use this technique to find clusters of galaxies. Here's another picture. You can see 
a lot of circulation in places which suggest that there's a mass distribution there, something distorting the background. Maybe you'd suspect that something that looks that strong had better be a good, strong mass distribution. And that cluster of galaxies was detected by exactly that technique. Now, there is a slight worry about this. Because you see a magnification in some regions and a demagnification in others, you can ask, if we are looking at a bit of the sky and we're looking at particular types of objects, are we seeing typical objects or not? Well, obviously, you're going to, typically, you're going to see the objects which are brightened because they're the ones which are going to be most obvious. And so there's a bias in the universe towards those regions of high magnification, looking at particular types of object in the background. And if you try to use the brightnesses of objects as a function of redshift, as a way of measuring the size of the universe, which is the old Hubble distance ladder for measuring the scale of the universe, you can potentially be biased by a significant factor in your measurement of the age of the universe. And you can do some rather entertaining general relativistic theory to work out how much that bias is. This was some work I did with an old research student of mine, and um, it's probably overstating the effect. But then, you know, we do these things for, uh, for publicity as much as anything else. Okay. So let's just summarize what I've said. It's now around about 100 years since the concepts of general relativity started to be developed, about 90 years since the theory really got going properly. Doubtless there'll be a damn great party in about 10 years' time. Gravitational lensing is arguably the most reliable way of measuring mass in the universe, mass on the largest scale. However, you've got to understand something about what the structures of the things that are being lensed are and what the structure of the thing that's doing the lensing is. And regrettably, not every telescope that we have to use here on Earth is perfect. And it turns out that you have to correct for the telescope aberration effects to uh, make any useful progress. It takes a lot of work. You can also get the mass subject to general relativity being correct. Generally, everything's working out pretty well. The gravitational lensing measurements of mass agree rather nicely with the mass measurements that we get from other techniques, like the speeds of things going around in clusters of galaxies, like the amount of gravity that's required to hold hot gas in X-ray emitting regions in. And that tends to show that uh, this idea that dark matter exists is fine. And there is dark matter out there, even if we can't see it directly and don't know what it is. And it's a bit worrying. So, it looks like dark matter really exists, and it's better. Okay, thank you very much.